0: Thank you everyone for tuning in to the Cashew Podcast. Today I'm chatting with Dr. Kamara Gustafson. Kamara, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you for having
1: me. It's uh, great to be able to share a little bit more about our work um, with the listeners and hopefully be able to continue to um, lead to uh, good connections within the university and the broader community.
0: Absolutely. What well, could you start by introducing yourself and just sharing a little bit more with our listeners about who you are and kind of what your role is?
1: Yeah, so um, I am a pediatrician here at the University of Minnesota Masonic Children's Hospital, which is kind of a mouthful, but um, I also work in the Adoption Medicine Clinic, which is a specialty clinic uh, here at the U. Um, it's uh, unique in that there's only a handful of clinics uh, like ours um, in the nation, um, and ours is actually the oldest. was founded over 30 years ago, um, and so historically, uh, kind of, or the origins, I guess, of the clinic is that um, it was founded by Dr. Dana Johnson, uh, and he founded it kind of out of his own necessity. He adopted his son from India um, and was looking for resources to help better support his son and his family and realized that it didn't exist and so founded it and the clinic originally was kind of focused more on international adoptees um, uh, and their adoptive families but um, thankfully the clinic has kind of evolved and grown um, as the community has evolved and grown within the adoption and um, uh, kind of family community has changed. And so now we see, um, both international adoptees, domestic adoptees, um, and children in foster care, um, kind of with, you know, the variety of paths, either for reunification or kinship care or, um, non-relative adoption. And, um, and we have been fortunate that we've been able to do much of this recent expansion uh, from a grant from the Department of um, Human Services. So since 2018, we've created this comprehensive model that um, allows us to see these kids and families as as part of a multidisciplinary team. And then uh, personally, I came to this, um, I had... Uh, somewhat non-traditional path to med school, and then in med school knew that I wanted to do something uh, related to pediatrics. Um, I was able, fortunately, to get uh, a dual degree in public health and pediatric or medicine. And so, um, but uh, during my residency here at the U, um, I uh, was fortunate to kind of uh, find out about the clinic And so then ultimately I was able to join in terms of um, faculty, um, but came to it partly because my personal connection is I am internationally adopted from Korea. Um, And so had kind of a personal interest and curiosity, but then that's definitely led more into um, my professional interest and um, kind of where I hope to be able to share both personal experience and professional experience with these families.
0: Thank you for sharing a little more with our listeners about yourself and and kind of your your journey to uh, working within the clinic and for many of our our primary audience and and the workforce we support through our center are frontline child welfare professionals who are working in uh, child protection, foster care, and in the adoption area and and. Primarily domestic, you know, here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I'm wondering if you could share a little bit more about the what the services are, or what some of that support you all offer looks like for for those families who are involved in child protection, for those children who are in foster care. And as you said, maybe. You know, maybe the permanency is look. It looks different in many ways. Whether that's reunification or you know transfer of legal custody or adoption, um, just kind of within that part of our system here. Um, If so, for professionals listening or other um, providers and advocates, and kind of thinking of like, okay, what services could we access for these these kids and families?
1: Yeah, so that's really where we've tried to develop um, a, kind of this, like I said, this multidisciplinary um, team. We, we uh, in the last couple of years, have created what we call the uh, Comprehensive Child Wellness Assessment, or the CCWA. And what we're doing is, <clears throat> excuse me, is we're bringing together both a medical professional, so either a pediatrician or a pediatric nurse practitioner, developmental specialist, so it's an um, occupational therapist, and then mental health um, support, so either clinical psychologist or a clinical social worker. Um, and uh, we do what we're calling kind of a baseline assessment, so they're not necessarily a full diagnostic assessment um, from the developmental or the mental health perspectives, because it's all within... Um, a, a framework of about an hour and a half to two hours. So we're really trying to squeeze a lot in um, for this assessment, but what we um, are hoping to do is to better kind of wrap ourselves around this child and the child's needs and then the family and um, be able to start to make some of the referrals or recommendations to better support kind of that, that child and the family. And this arose out of um, when we looked into the broader community to see what was being done, we realized that uh, that initial kind of um, removal assessment, the emergency assessment that's done kind of if a child is removed due to concern for their welfare um, is pretty much focused on the physical exam um, and looking at, you know, do they have signs of physical trauma or um, signs of, you know, physical neglect that need to be addressed. But uh, then there wasn't necessarily kind of a standard assessment in terms of the emotional and uh, mental kind of aspects that may be at play. Um, And so we're really trying to help fill in that need a little bit. Um, And then what's very um, fortunate for us is that the mental health support we have, we're partnering with the um, Birth to Three Early Intervention kind of mental health uh, team that's looking at, you know, with the very much kind of trauma-focused lens of what is this early potential trauma or toxic stress doing to the growth and development of this child and then how do we help to better support um both in short term and long term kind of that resiliency for the child and the family um whether it be that they're going to be uh permanency is with you know relative or um non relative or if reunification seems to be um a good option and uh and then what I'm also excited about is that um, as we look out into the broader community, there's not a lot of necessarily um, clear guidance from a kind of a similar uh, comprehensive assessment for these children, and so that's where I feel like historically the the clinic has been able to be kind of um, the a model that's used nationally. Uh, in terms of international adoption, adoption care, and I'm I'm really hoping that we can continue to be that model now as we expand more into domestic and foster care, um, uh, care of these children.
0: Yeah, and can you share how many children and families have been served? Like, you know, not exact numbers, but <laughs> yeah.
1: So, um, so we we are especially clinics. We only have clinic. Um, uh, it started as one half day a week, and now we've expanded to two half days a week. And slowly over the last couple of years, we've also been able to expand the number of providers available. Um, but that being said, I think in the last two years since the grant started, uh, we saw over 2,000 children. Um, and it's a mix of... Um, kind of international adoptees, domestic and foster care, but predominantly uh, the majority would be domestic or um, foster care uh, children. And um, ideally, you know, once, if, if we had kind of a, like, wave my magic wand, we would ideally be seeing these kids a couple months after placement. Um, but right now we're just seeing... Kids kind of as they're able to come, so some of them have been in placement for you know I saw one that was on a Tuesday and they had been recently placed on sunday um, but then other kids have been in their placement for years um, so we, we we see the whole gamut right now
0: yeah, and what are some of the the benefits that you've seen for those you know two 2000- thousand? or more children that have been served through your services and or how has taking care of both their psychological state as well as their physical needs um, you know overall like uh, how have you seen that improve outcomes for children
1: yeah so uh, it's a great question and I think right now we're still working on kind of being able to um, process the data to kind of to back up that it is uh, value added to these kids. But uh, I think just anecdotally, what we see is that, um, you know, that the families I think have a better sense of the kind of extent to the need that these children have in terms of support. Um, and I feel like by us helping to reframe some of their behaviors or their, Um, uh, kind of barriers that the kids are struggling with um, it can help the families to be better advocates and also to kind of better understand their own child Um, so if the child is exhibiting you know kind of obstinate behavior, we can help to try to figure out is this because they're just a typical toddler and they're, you know, three and they want to kind of control situation, or is this like actually a manifestation of their anxiety um, and that they've had a history of um, neglect or trauma that has resulted in this behavior. And so able to help the families to kind of better understand that and Um, You know, one of the questions oftentimes we get is how do we kind of parent the child and keep them safe and create safe boundaries and kind of parameters, um, but also continue to promote bonding and attachment. And we don't want it to necessarily always be punitive, but we can't have the child just have kind of run of the house, um, as maybe they had been used to, you know, in the previous setting, um, especially if there is issue and neglect. And so um, helping to kind of work with the families, to say here are some parenting techniques to kind of reframe, you know, so that it's not uh, a timeout scenario, but maybe, you know, having them work more into kind of how do we do like a rewards-based or time-in kind of parenting strategy um, and see if that helps. And then definitely, if it's um, if it's needed, we are able to make referrals for ongoing mental health support, both for the child individual therapy or, you know, family therapy or both. Um, and similarly, on the developmental side, if it's deemed that that baseline assessment is... Um kind of flagging some areas, then we're able to make those referrals and kind of fast track um to get the um you know get them kind of caught up or or um better supported so that when you know if if it's a younger child when they are in getting ready to start school, they're kind of in a better place or if it's a grade school child are already that that family knows, okay, we need to really, you know, kind of try to fast track and, and partner with the school district to get the necessary support. Because a lot of times, as um, you likely know, you know, this is, this transition has also resulted in a school transition too. So, you know, families are kind of having to start all over and the school doesn't quite know what they're dealing with. And they may or may not have access to that previous um IEP or 504 if there was one yeah and and thinking about um
0: the kids that you know the the overrepresentation of um kids of color and other um marginalized groups in the child welfare system then you may be seeing through your clinic and services like how um how where does like culture show up in the work you are able to do internally and then um, are you able to um, do you have partnerships and, and referrals you're able to make for kind of culturally specific supports for for these children?
1: yeah, so um it's a great question and i I think that um, as much as we can we um, are working with the families you know it kind of Depends on the the composition. So you know, obviously, if there's kinship, there's some like rel- kind of maybe distant, but some connection to the biological family, um, and so maybe there's some kind of connection to um, uh, or similarity or shared kind of experience. Um, if there, uh, if the child's a person of color, and then the family might be. Um, as well. But if it's a non-relative or domestic adoption, or definitely for our international adoptees, um, I always try to kind of make a point of um, focusing on the culture of the child or um, the culture that the child came from and is being kind of placed in, and then trying to help navigate community resources um, to say, how do we help them? Especially because we do see a vast majority of our patients are actually from Greater Minnesota, um, and so, um, and this is where I think sometimes I lean on my personal experience as well of saying, like, okay, if you live up in, you know, uh, the Iron Range, or if you're down in kind of southwestern Minnesota, and here's this child of color. From my own personal experience, kind of making a guess that they might be even more of um, kind of a minority in this, you know, kind of newly placed environment. So making sure to talk to the family about how do we continue to support them and that if they do need mental health support, that that's kind of an area that will need to be supported as well, um, hopefully to the benefit of their mental health. Um, so some of the local organizations, you know, we partner a lot with Men Adopt, um and Emoja and um, other kind of cultural spe- specific groups in the area that are looking at like, Latinx or uh, Native American um, or kind of Asian American. Um, and then I talk to the families, like, um, also about that... Definitely we want to make sure that they're kind of keeping that on their um the the front of their mind, but that it doesn't, you know, that it can be kind of tailored to the age of the child too. And so if there's opportunities to, you know, participate in kind of family day cultural events and things like that, that might be something that they could include kind of a larger family. It doesn't have to, you know, not everything has to be just about um, the one child that's kind of in front of me. But what I like about our clinic is that, um, and in pediatrics in general, I think we know that the child does not exist in a vacuum. And so in helping to try to support the family or the child, we need to make sure that that works within that family context too. So, the support of the child, I think oftentimes kind of um broadens to be you know better supportive of the family, and that might be other siblings or um, you know kind of other adult caregivers that are um, in the picture, yeah,
0: and thinking about um kind of pathways and and the pathways um children and families become involved in and access services through the clinic. Um, What are some of the ways, you know, do you primarily see referrals from county agencies, um, you know, or or, um, families kind of coming on their own? Just if you could share more of like how how are folks accessing services?
1: Yeah. So I think um, prior to the grant, it was mostly like self-referral or kind of word of mouth within the parent community. Um, We historically have done, and we continue to do outreach events where we'll go and um, partner with uh, agencies like Children's Home Society or um, some of the um, adoption-related camps that um, occur over the summer. But um, but definitely with the grant, we've been able to expand our outreach and so have been going out and just describing our services. Um, to the, pretty much I think we've done every county now in the state of Minnesota. So now a lot of our foster care and domestic adoption referrals are coming through um, case managers um, and county-based. And um, we do, with any child that comes to the clinic, regardless of kind of the, where they started and where they're going, we will do um, a fetal alcohol spectrum assessment, um, again, similar to kind of the developmental and mental health assessment. And if it seems like they're at higher risk, we kind of can help to continue that referral as well. So we do also get kind of a subset of referrals looking specifically for FAS or kind of prenatal exposure assessment. Um, And so occasionally we'll get that through uh, like a community partner that's helping to partner with the biological family, you know, if, if a parent has now been able to get their own services, sometimes we'll get referral that way as well.
0: Yeah. And are there, um, do you all offer, uh, post reunification, post adoption services and supports? And if so, kind of what does that look like for, for families?
1: Yeah. So, um, definitely post-adoption. So for our internationally adoptees and domestic adoptees, we do offer a service through the clinic where we'll do a pre-adoption assessment. Um, that is a fee-for-service um, kind of service. That uh, But some, depending on the agency, there are some grants available um, that families can inquire about to help kind of cover those costs. Um, and what we do with those is we take... of any available information. On the domestic side, it's hard because oftentimes they don't have the um, kind of pre-placement information. But if it is, sometimes we'll have access maybe to birth records or kind of a redacted um, medical record of the biological mother. And so we kind of look through and try to help the family to just better decipher, you know, what do all of these mean? And what does this mean in terms of Possible support or kind of um, interventions that this child may need, and and then post-adoption for our international adoptees, we recommend that they be seen in our clinic for that initial assessment, usually within two to three weeks of um, placement, and then. Um, but really, we're happy to see them anytime, kind of after they join the family, and similar for, for domestic adoption. Um, And then for foster care, we haven't done as much work um, following the families uh, post-reunification, but definitely if a child's in our clinic through foster care, we're happy to continue to follow whether or not they find permanency through non-relative or kin domestic adoption. Um, And then that is an area that we're working on Um, developing more is we now just in the last two years we now have a handful of kids that have been able to make that transition back to reunification and so are partnering with the biological family um, and parents to try to help support Um, and that's an area where uh, just kind of out of my own interest I started doing some digging about you know what are the medical recommendations and it's It's kind of a, there's a void right now in terms of, you know, oftentimes I think um, from a medical standpoint, from what I could find, it was like, oh, well, you're back with your parents. So, you know, good luck and we'll see you later. (laughs) So we're definitely trying to help to kind of fill that void because um, at least anecdotally, a couple of the kids that we've seen that have, uh, you know, currently are reunified, um, just ended up being some of the kids that have a lot of higher needs so knowing that there it's going to be a child that is going to need more support and resources and then you know being reunified with parents who are still doing their own kind of um, work uh, and so how do we help to really support them so this is can be as successful as possible yeah and you know as a
0: and knowing often for professionals and advocates that are supporting families and and children involved in the child welfare system and trying to make referrals and and um get assessments done like FASD FA you know um and other needs sometimes um it, you know capacity can be an issue and it, you know it's it's not as easy to access as, as sometimes people would think and then i also am thinking now we're in a pandemic and mm-hmm. i'm wondering has the the work you all are doing in the services you all are able to offer um, shifted so far during the pandemic um, whether that's capacity or even just what that work looks like and and do you see any of that potentially you know um, sticking you know, more long term or for a while. I know we don't know a lot about what the coming yeah. months are going to look like, Bob.
1: Yeah, so I think kind of a silver lining, if you can say it um, in that way, is that we were able to pivot pretty quickly um, to a virtual model, um, recognizing that there are some things like some of the physical exam um, items that we need to do aren't currently able to be done in a virtual manner. Um, but we are still able to do, I would say, you know, 85 to 90 percent of our assessment in a virtual manner. And so um, we really only had, I think, two weeks or so that we had to cancel clinic. And we've been able to shift now. And capacity wise, I think because of the virtual model, we've actually been able to um increased capacity because there's more flexibility in terms of scheduling on our end and now everyone's home. So we are just like, well, you know, you let us know when might work, you know, if you can block off an hour in your week, um, where we can try to work around it within reason. Um, And so our hope, uh, and it looks pretty promising, uh, especially uh, because we know that a majority of our patients are coming from greater Minnesota. Um, you know, on any kind of regular clinic morning, I would say the average travel time for my families would be, you know, at least two hours to get to clinic. And you know, my first appointment is usually around eight. So these kids are getting up at five in the morning um, to come down or come up. And so um, we would love to be able to continue to do at least a portion of it virtually Um and, uh, and I think it looks like that that's going to be possible. And then to kind of, um, streamline so that, uh, the portions that need to be done in person kind of saves them some trips, you know, maybe instead of doing two or three trips, we can kind of condense different aspects of it into one. Um, and then what's been also, um, a silver lining is that within the mental health community, it's, it seems like they've been able to pivot relatively well to a virtual model as well. And so um, that's allowed, at least I know our mental health team and then we partner closely with Frasier in the mental health support there too, that um, they've been able to offer virtual mental health support. And so for families um, in areas where there's kind of a lack of, Um, Options. I think that's been uh, potentially value-added. And we know that there, again, are going to be some limitations in terms of virtual mental health, but um, a lot, especially for our younger kids, a lot of um, the work that um, our psychologists are doing is through observation. And so they were saying that it's actually been um, just as, kind of effective, if not more so, because they're able to see these kids in their home environment. And so sometimes able to see, you know, sometimes the kids seem to be doing better because they're not in kind of this new or um, strange environment, but sometimes they can also see the behaviors that the parents are kind of having to experience, but they don't display when they're outside the home. But when they're in a safe environment, they're like, just letting everything go and so then the you know the parents don't feel like oh you think I'm a crazy person because in person they're totally fine and quiet and content and then at home there's these rages and whatnot and so our our um, therapists are like oh yeah no I, I see what you're saying or you know that can um, just get a little bit more of a firsthand kind of account of what's going on so I think that's been um definitely kind of a a positive to come out of all of this we know that um there's um still some restrictions and limitations definitely with the f a s evaluation that's been more of an obstacle and we're still trying to navigate what that might look like um but i i find that so far the families that we've been doing virtual visits with um seems like that they felt like it's been value added um and that uh you know we're able to help to connect them to the community resources as um available kind of in spite of everything yeah and for folks who are um maybe
0: listening and and don't know um what FAS, just thinking of that now, may mean and, oh, yeah. and actually how prevalent, you know, the, the prevalence of that in um, some of our kids that are involved in child welfare and, um, you know, end up um, seeking our permanency in other ways, adoption. Um, what is that? And if you can say a little bit about that assessment and evaluation, that why that makes it a little hard to do that virtually.
1: Oh, yeah, sure. So FAS is a uh stands for fetal alcohol spectrum, um, and it's uh, similar to autism or ADHD, that it's a condition that definitely can have different presentations, um, all the way from kind of mild to severe. Um, the main diagnostic criteria are uh, that there's um, known uh, alcohol exposure during the pregnancy, um, and The second one would be that there's growth issues. Um, So oftentimes at a severe end, these kids can have difficulty growing appropriately, um, even if they're getting kind of the uh, adequate caloric support, you know, in terms of... The third one would be there's um, brain changes. So we know that FAS is kind of the number one cause of preventable um, brain damage in children and, um, and what's tricky is that the fourth criteria is that there are characteristic facial features that can be seen again in the more kind of severe presentation of it um, and so usually the main facial features are they have um, small eyes or the eyes appeared really wide set um, but it has to do actually with the width of the eye um, they have a really flat area kind of between the the bottom of the nose and the upper lip, which we call the philtrum. And then they have a thin upper lip. Um, but we also know that you can have kind of a brain changes that impact cognitive functioning without having the visible physical facial features. Um, and so this is something that um, we know is sorely underdiagnosed and kind of. Um, The understanding of it uh, is uh, definitely not to a point where we would hope. Um, And then the result is that these kids, their brains just don't function in the same way as maybe the kind of the non-exposed peers. But they don't have any physical evidence of that kind of brain dysfunction. Like you might think of with other um, syndromes like, like Down syndrome, um, that has kind of a physical manifestation. And so a lot of times the struggles come that either caregiver or other adult, um, figures like educators, the expectations that they're placing on the child are unattainable based on the child's capacity, but they don't quite know that, um, if, um if this hasn't been fully assessed, and so they feel like they're just always at odds with each other, Um, and the child themselves starts to recognize this, and then will start to potentially internalize some of that kind of negative reinforcement that they're getting either um, intentionally or unintentionally by the uh, kind of environment that they're in. Um, And so I feel like it's a very important assessment because the way i describe it to families is it's similar to dyslexia in that someone who's dyslexic doesn't necessarily have the the name or the word to associate they just know they can't see the information in the way that they think they should um and so it's causing them to struggle and if that's undiagnosed then their family also doesn't quite know like how come you're not reading or how come you can't remember numbers. Um, And if that's kind of left undiagnosed, then it can snowball into other issues. And that's how I think of FAS. If we can make a good diagnosis early on and get support in, similar to dyslexia, we can figure out ways in which to help that child to kind of figure out workarounds or compensate or the areas that they struggle a bit more um, but if not it can lead to usually more mental health issues um, and you know and um, things like school avoidance or um, kind of maladaptive behaviors as their way of trying to deal with what they're struggling with thank you for kind of breaking that down
0: a little bit more and just kind of highlighting again the importance of more of these fuller, more comprehensive assessments and, and identifying the needs of you know children, um, and especially children that have experienced trauma and lots of transition and helping support them and prepare them to you know live well in their new forever homes and, and whatever that permanency looks like for them. Is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners, um, with the frontline kind of child welfare professionals, other providers that are serving children, um, anything else you want them to know about this work and in, in in the clinic?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that we would really um, be excited to be able to partner with kind of our frontline child welfare Um, providers in the sense that um, kind of when I think about what is the um, root of what I do or what I hope to be doing is really to try to kind of repair and restore the resiliency um, in each of these kids. And um, I think it's easy sometimes to get caught up in all of the negative or um kind of bad things that have happened thus far for some of our kids and i don't want to minimize or negate that but what what helps me to kind of keep going um, day after day is knowing that um both you know in general kids don't necessarily know different and so um when that's in a bad situation, unfortunately, they don't know that there's a potential for the good. But if we're able to help them to get into a better situation, I think that uh, for the most part, kind of a child's core is set up to try to grow and thrive. And so I feel like my work is really trying to get them into that situation. Um, And if we can kind of provide that nurturing that they need then it is um there's that potential that they're going to you know when i come back for follow up that um they're like a you know totally different kid you know in the sense um you know so an example is uh, i had a little 3 year old who was diagnosed with autism cuz she had been left she was nonverbal and was having rages, Um, but her history was she had been essentially left for the first year and a half uh, in a pack and play um, and unattended. And then once she got placed into uh, her permanent family setting, you know, a year after, she's, you know, just this bubbly, adorable, lovely child um, that uh, really was able to kind of weather that experience and kind of come through But the other thing that um, I just want to kind of make sure that people know, and that I I say this on when I go out and do community talks and whatnot, is that I think historically we used to think kind of the end of the story was that permanency placement. And then after that, we can kind of just, you know, wipe our hands of the kid and move on to the next. Um, And now we know um, and and definitely, like personally, I believe that that's not definitely not the end of the that's kind of the end of that chapter. And we have to kind of keep going to the next chapter. Um, and so capacity wise, getting back to kind of the capacity wise, we used to just see children kind of at the first placement and then send them back to their primary. But now we um I recommend to families that we see them more kind of periodically um, and the way that I think about it with families or talk about it with families is the child is going to kind of um, continue to process their experiences um, based on their developmental stage and so if they were removed as a young child they've had the experience but they might not know how to process it but when they get to 4th or 5th grade Maybe something kind of triggers their memory going back to when they were a child, but they don't quite know how to make sense of it. Or when they hit adolescence and now they're developmentally, you know, we expect them to go through kind of their identity um, development experience, you know, what does that mean to be adopted or have this history of foster care. So that's where I think, again, we need to continue to partner with the families and the community providers to say um, this is something that is part of their narrative, and we want to help to support them ongoing um, as they're kind of moving into adulthood Um, because we know that from like the prenatal alcohol exposure or adverse childhood experiences um, and the data on all that, that's not going to change. That's going to be something that continues to have potential impact lifelong as well. So we need to be able to help um, them navigate kind of through this experience as best we can.
0: Yes. And for sure, and we talk about that a lot in the the child welfare system side too of how do we um, how do we get to a place where it doesn't just end at you know case closed, reunification happened, permanency was achieved. we all, you know, everyone needs ongoing support from their networks and and these mm-hmm. families that we're serving that are especially vulnerable, they need support too. and so how do we? How do we continue to support beyond, like you said, you know, when permanency is made, and and continue to support these children, you know, for years to come? And so I think that's a really great reminder and a great reminder on how do we partner and and put our you know our heads together and and do that work together. So thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Well, and thank you for taking time to chat with me and to share more with our our listeners and kind of our our network about the adoption medicine clinic and we will yeah yeah
1: and i just also want to say what so um some of the beauty of our clinic we're a pretty close-knit group um you know in terms of our staff and so um definitely if people have any questions um we're more than happy to have people email or call um and it's pretty easy to get to a person (laughs) to have kind of a conversation so if people just have questions like, is this something that this child should be seen? We're not even sure if um, we're in the right place. We're happy to even have conversations kind of at that stage um, of the process. Um, so don't feel like that it just automatically has to be, you know, everyone has to kind of come to the clinic. Um, Great, thank you.
0: This podcast was supported in part by a grant from the Minnesota Department of Human Services, Children and Family Services Division.